Welcome to Students of Surgery, bringing you talks on various surgical topics by experts in the field, making learning and preparing for your exams a little easier. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Tanweer Jafar, a surgical registrar at Steve Biko Academic Hospital. With me today is my colleague, Dr. Athena Maliakal, who will be talking about cholidocal cysts with Professor Martin Brand. Professor Brand is head of our HPB firm here at Steve Biko Academic Hospital. Hello, Prof. So, regarding uh, cholidocal cysts, what exactly are they? Cholidocal cysts are thought to be congenital anomalies of the bile ducts. Um, they've been defined as an abnormal or cystic dilatation of the biliary tree, and some people even refer to them as aneurysms of the biliary tree. What is the pathophysiology of a cholidocal cyst? The exact etiology is not really known, but as I said before, it is a congenital um, cyst. So the most widely accepted theory is that there's a cystic dilatation of the bile duct is related to an anomalous pancreaticobiliary duct union. So in other words, where the pancreatic duct joins the common bile duct proximal to where the common bile duct enters the duodenum. And this allows for reflux of pancreatic juices as well as gastrointestinal juices, which results in chronic inflammation in the mucosa and eventually weakening of the bile duct wall, ectasia, and finally uh, dilatation. The type 5 is slightly different because it's thought to be as a result of an abnormal embryonic ductal plate development. Are there any newer theories? More recently, two theories have come to the forefront, of which one is, is, has a lot of promise, in which they explain that there's an abnormal ganglion cells in the narrow portion of the common bile duct where it enters into the duodenal wall be, before it becomes the ampulla. Um, there is possibly a hereditary association with this type, and it's almost like a Hirschsprung's type disease, but just of the bile duct. Another theory which is not very commonly used is that there's an abnormal function and spasm of the sphincter of Oddi, and that this results also in reflux and cholidocal cysts. How would a patient with a cholidocal cyst commonly present? This is really age-dependent. Um, the classical triad of obstructive jaundice together with the right upper quadrant, mass, and abdominal pain are not commonly seen in adults. However, in children, up to 85% of them will have at least two of these three features. Older patients, in other words, older ch children or adults, will usually present with complications of the disease, such as cholidocolithiasis, cholangitis, biliary cirrhosis, malignancy, pancreatitis, and very, very, very rarely, biliary peritonitis secondary to cyst rupture. So in other words, in infants, they present with cholestatic jaundice. In children, they will present more commonly with a right upper quadrant mass with or without obstructive jaundice. And in adults, the symptoms are very nonspecific, and the most common of which is right upper quadrant pain. How should we go about working up a patient that presents with a suspected cholidocal cyst? So there's a radiological and a biochemical workup. The radiology is really done to define the anatomy of the biliary tree as well as exclude complications such as carcinomas. And the biochemical tests are done to determine what the underlying liver function is and then also exclude complications such as acute cholangitis, pancreatitis, etc. Which radiological investigations would you use in the workup? So regardless of age, we would always start with an abdominal ultrasound. We are able to actually assess the whole intra and extrahepatic biliary tree together with the gallbladder. It also is not a bad modality to look for associated complications such as cystolithiasis and the presence of malignancy. In adults, we tend to always do a triphasic abdominal CT scan once we have a suspicious uh, abdominal ultrasound. And this again is to exclude the differential diagnosis of a bile duct dilatation. 
So typically we're looking to exclude malignancies. An MRCP is actually done in many centers. However, we would consider it a secondary imaging tool, um, and it really does help us to identify biliary anatomy. Invasive procedures such as an ERCP and a PTBD are really only indicated when there's an urgent management of a biliary complication such as cholangitis. And once we've settled the complication down, we can then do a cholangiogram and then determine what the anatomy is. HIDA scans are very rarely used in adults. They're more commonly used in infants. Um, and this is really where the differential diagnosis of biliary atresia, which also gives them obstructive jaundice, is a possibility and has to be excluded. What sort of biochemical tests would we be doing and why? Um, we would always do a liver function test. This is to confirm obstructive jaundice and also assist in excluding complications such as cholangitis and biliary cirrhosis. An INR would always go hand in hand with the liver function test because we're looking for underlying coagulopathy, which could be due either due to the obstructive jaundice or the liver cirrhosis. A full blood count would be done to exclude anemia of chronic disease. And if the platelet count is less than 100, it may indicate the presence of portal hypertension and varices, which are both complications of um, cholidocal cysts. Finally, a urea and electrolytes will be done primarily to exclude renal dysfunction, which would then allow us to do a triphasic CT scan. But also, if the patient has hyponatremia, one would have to be suspicious that there may be underlying liver cirrhosis. What is the differential diagnosis for a large cystic lesion identified at the port of hepatis? So the most common cystic lesions would obviously be the cholidocal cysts and followed by pancreatic pseudocysts. Very rarely, hepatic cysts are actually exophytic and may present in the porta. One condition that we must really talk about is the benign biliary duct dilatation following a cholecystectomy. All patients that have a cholecystectomy will experience some form of dilatation of their bile duct, and we usually ex will accept up to 10 millimeters diameter as being normal in this scenario. Very rare cystic lesions would include gastrointestinal duplication cysts or omental cysts or mesenteric cysts. What associated hepatobiliary pathology could accompany so the most common would be cystolithiasis, and that's because there's stagnation of bile within the cyst. Most intracystic stones are usually soft, they're earthy, they have a pigmented brown appearance, and this supports bile stasis and also chronic infections. Hepatolithiasis has been recognized with increasing frequency, and this is usually typically due to the development of inflammatory strictures and is more common in type 4A cysts. Biliary pancreatitis is always a potential. Um, some others, a lot rarer, are portal hypertension, which is secondary to biliary cirrhosis, fibrosis. You can have portal vein thrombosis from compression of the, the cyst. And then you also have Crowley's disease with congenital hepatic fibrosis. Of course, the one that we worry the most about is malignancy, specifically cholangiocarcinoma, as well as gallbladder carcinoma. But actually, you can get almost any form of malignancy within the biliary tree, such as anaplastic carcinomas, bile duct sarcomas, but these are very, very rare indeed. The most common would be cholangiocarcinoma and gallbladder carcinoma. Which classification system do we use for the cholidocal cysts? So there are a few, but the most common one that we use is the alonzo lay tadani classification, or it's just really known as the Tadani classification. It has five subtypes. The type 1 is the real true fusiform dilatation of the extrapatic bile duct. It is also the most common, and it's been divided into three, so it's a 1A, B, and a C, and the 1A is a cystic dilatation, 1B is a focal dilatation, and 1C is really the true fusiform dilatation. 
But type 2 is already a true diverticulum of the CBD, uh, whereas type 3 is a cystic dilatation of the intraduodenal portion of the common bile duct. And these are what we typically would call a colidocal seal. Type 4 is also divided into two subgroups, where type 4A has multiple intra- and extrahepatic cystic dilatations of the bile ducts and is the most co- common type following type 1. Type 4B has multiple cysts which are limited to the extrahepatic bile ducts. So in other words, you have completely normal intrahepatic bile ducts in type 4B. Type 5 is synonymous with what's called Coroides disease and is really multiple cystic dilatations of the intrahepatic bile ducts. So, Prof, I've heard of Caroli syndrome. Is there a difference between Caroli syndrome and Caroli disease? Yes, there is. So, Caroli's disease really is just the cystic dilatations within the liver, whereas Caroli syndrome consists of Caroli's disease together with congenital hepatic fibrosis. And typically, these are the patients who present with intrahepatic cysts as well as liver cirrhosis. What is the risk of malignancy which is associated with each type? The overall incidence of malignancy in patients that have colidocal cystic disease is about 10 to 30%. So in other words, it's about 121 times greater than the general population that does not have a colidocal cyst. This risk will always increase with age, as well as with recurrent complications, especially with recurrent cholangitis, multiple previous drainage procedures, and if the underlying pathology is an anomalous pancreatic or biliary junction. Most of the malignancies will always occur inside the cyst. However, the whole biliary tree is at risk. Cholangiocarcinoma is the most common malignancy that we see. However, gallbladder carcinoma accounts for up to 10 to 25% of associated malignancies. In other words, it is not uncommon. If we look at the specific subtypes, type 1 and 4 are at the highest risk for malignant change, and these are the ones where we see it up to 30% of the time. Type 3s have the lowest risk of about 2 to 3%, and in other words, the type 2s and type 5s fall in between the two categories, but they tend to be of a lower risk, so they're probably closer to the 3% than the 30%. And regarding the operative repair of um, the collagenocal cysts, what are the general principles? So we would have to resolve the biliary obstruction and, of course, restore biliary drainage, usually by mucosa-to-mucosa bilioenteric anastomosis. And we also want to reduce the risk of long-term malignancy, so we try to excise as much of the biliary tree as possible. The cholecystectomy will always be performed. And we would prefer to excise the lesion as early as possible. So regardless of the age, as early as possible after the diagnosis, we should be excising it. The only time that we would not do it in an early situation is where we have complications such as cholangitis or acute pancreatitis, which obviously must be resolved before one can consider operating on these patients. So regarding the type 1 and the type 2s, are there any differences within the, within the operative management of these patients? Yeah, they are slightly different. So in a type 1, we would do a complete cystectomy together with extrahepatic bile duct resection, and we would reconstruct this using a Roux-en-Y hepaticojejunostomy. A type 2, if we can, we would get away with a diverticulectomy and a closure of the common bile duct at the diverticular neck. However, if the neck of the diverticulum is very wide, we would then also excise the extrahepatic biliary tree and reconstruct it with a Roux-en-Y hepaticojejunostomy. How would we go about managing a type 3? So type 3s we divide into two. So either they are small, so in other words they have a diameter of less than 2 centimeters, or they are large, and they mean they have a diameter bigger than 2 centimeters. The small ones, in the past we always used to manage them just with the straightforward ERCP and sphincterotomy. However, nowadays we would do an endoscopic cyst excision as well. 
The larger ones, we would, or the ones that have been associated with a complication such as acute pancreatitis or a gastric outlet obstruction, we would do an open transduodenal cyst excision together with a hepatopancreatic ampulla sphincteroplasty. And what about a type 4 and a type 5? So yeah, these two are relatively similar. So in the type 4, the extrahepatic component, we would manage with a complete cyst excision together with extrahepatic duct excision, always including a cholecystectomy and reconstruct this with the usual Roux-en-Y hepaticojejunostomy. If there's intrahepatic involvement, we would see if it's isolated to a portion of the liver that we do a liver resection. However, often the whole liver is involved and we would not be able to resect this. So those patients would go on to a liver transplant list. A type 5 is the same, so if the disease is localized, we can consider doing a partial hepatectomy. However, most commonly it is widespread and these patients need to go for a liver transplant. What about those cases where surgery is not an option or if the patient is waiting for a liver transplant? So here the most common thing that we would need to manage is obstructive jaundice. So we would use stents for the strictures or percutaneous drainage using a, a PTBD. We would also have to be very vigilant for recurrent complications, such as recurrent stones, recurrent cholangitis, liver abscesses, and we would also have to do our best to prevent biliary cirrhosis. What major complications can be associated with operative repair of cholidocal cysts? So these I divide into intraoperative, early postoperative, and late complications. Intraoperative the most common complication is that we injure surrounding structures. So these cysts create a very intense inflammatory process. So very often the portal vein is stuck onto the back of the cyst and it can be very difficult to dissect this off without injuring the portal vein, which we then obviously have to repair at the time. If we go very distal on the common bile duct, we may interfere with the pancreatic duct and this may cause a stricture around the pancreatic duct and the eventual acute pancreatitis from that. Early postoperative complications are most commonly if the patient has had preoperative biliary drainage procedures that they get wound infection or intra-abdominal abscesses, and this is followed closely by cholangitis. And because we've been fiddling with the biliary tree, we can cause segmental cholangitis within the liver, which obviously then needs to be treated by a percutaneous drainage. We can also cause acute pancreatitis, as I've mentioned. And of course, because we're doing anastomosis, an anastomotic leak is always a possibility. The late complications, which usually occur at least after a few months, would be stricture formation, especially around the anastomotic site. You can have adhesive bowel obstruction because we created the Roux and Y loop from small bowel. You can get recur recurrent acute pancreatitis. And you, of course, you can get recurrent intrahepatic infections, which can usually be caused by biliary stasis because of inflammatory strictures in the biliary tree. And of course, if any of the biliary tree is left behind, there's always the risk of getting a biliary tree malignancy. What is the follow-up of these patients? So in general, these patients have a very good prognosis, and it's actually excellent for younger patients because complications in this group are very rare. But for all patients, we advocate lifelong follow-up. There are no specific guidelines that relate to this, and we usually individualize this to a patient. But to my mind, surveillance should include at least biochemical testing with liver function tests and an INR, initially done six monthly, possibly for the first two to three years following the surgery, together with a radiological assessment, which is usually an ultrasound. And once we get past two years, we can consider extending it to an annual investigation. And then potentially after five years of follow-up with no complications, we can consider making it even longer, possibly even coming back every two to three years. Visit our companion YouTube site for more tutorials. Also, remember to leave us a review or comment and let us know what you think so we can improve the next time.